Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. On our Crime Scenes episode this week, a Christmas season stakeout over at Amazon headquarters. The Arts Express heads over there to what's going down with the Amazon workers protesting Black Friday and beyond out on the streets of New York City. Well, we're here on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan, outside of the building where Jeff Bezos owns four floors of luxury apartments. And right out here, as you can see, we're seeing representatives of labor unions and progressive community activist groups who are assembling to demand the recognition of a union at the Amazon warehouses. Now, among the crowd are Amazon workers, uh, allies of the labor movement, progressive activists, etc., all highlighting the conditions at the Amazon warehouses, uh, demanding better treatment for the workers. Here is some of what was in the call made for actions against Jeff Bezos on Black Friday, what is traditionally a top shopping holiday in the United States. The Make Amazon Pay Coalition is demanding higher wages for Amazon's employees, an end to the worker surveillance policies, extended sick leave and improvement of anti-COVID measures, an end to casual employment status and representation for the union. And they want Amazon, as well as its CEO, Jeff Bezos, to pay their fair share in taxes. Now, last year on Black Friday, there were massive protests targeting Amazon around the world. And this year continued that tradition. We saw actions in the United Kingdom, actions in Latin America, actions in Bangladesh, and many parts of the world targeting Jeff Bezos and Amazon, highlighting the treatment of the workers and demanding union representation. Now, some of the protesters here today said that this is a global movement. We chose this day because we were following in the footsteps of what happened last year, and it proved to be the right thing to do because we're here today, but when we woke up, the workers in Europe are already blocking uh, warehouses in England. There are actions all over the globe, and it, this, this is a massive movement against greedy capitalists like Bezos. Last year's, as, as well as uh, 2019, were pretty big, but this year may be the biggest. I mean, today, you know, Amazon workers in South Africa walked off the job. Amazon workers in Brazil and in Mexico walked off the job. So it's quite a gathering. Uh, we're seeing voices from the labor movement, from climate change, activists uh, supporting groups, progressive organizations. Quite a gathering here on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. Can you describe uh, the conditions in the Amazon warehouses? Yeah, absolutely. They're brutal, especially around the holiday season. They work 10 to 12 hours with an extra day now, mandatory extra time for the next six weeks, six to eight weeks. Um, you know, workers going to be working 55 plus hours uh, just to fulfill packages for Christmas and, and holidays. Um, these warehouses are over a million square feet, so they walk plus uh, 10 miles a day. They're on their feet all, all, all the time. Uh, there's no real bathroom breaks because if they take away from the time from the station, uh, that's time off task and they can absolutely be fired for that. So they're subjected to uh, you know long days, uh, no rest, minimum bathroom breaks, minimum break time, and um, the working conditions continue to get worse. I think it's so very sad and very bad, and especially what's happening in the last two years in this country. People are suffering, especially the working class. Jeff Bezos is a symbol of this country, but that country which is not based on the humanity, which is based on the greed. Jeff Bezos, just in a minute, is earning what Amazon workers would dream of working in hours and hours and in days. So we have to really focus on how they have so much money, so much control of markets, and ability to drag down the wages. And that was our tea reporter and contributor to this show, Caleb Moppin. And now on Arts Express, the Arts Express Playhouse with Mary Murphy and possibly also co-starring Prairie Miller. And now, a special Arts Express report, live on location from the 94th Annual International Pun Competition. Oh, what did Delaware, boy, what did Delaware, what did Delaware, 
wore a brand new jersey. That's what she did wear. One, two, three, four. Oh, why did California, why did California, why did California, was she all alone? She called to say how are you, she called to say how are you, she called to say how are you, that's why she did call. Act Shalom, special correspondent coming to you on location here in this chilly winter day in Frostbite Falls, Minnesota. I'm at the town's world-famous Punvention Center. It's... It's a magnificent sight, Prairie. A towering structure in downtown Frostbite Falls, looming over the Frostbite Falls Civic Center with its almost, well nigh, three-story high building topped by a pulsating 3G telephone tower. And of course, on its northern face, the famous Yoo-Hoo chocolate drink clock people from all over the region as far as Ottertail County are here to participate in the annual World Pun Competition. They're lined up for Blocks Prairie, winding around the so-called ninth wonder of the world, an enormous ice sculpture of former Frostbite Falls Mayor S.W. Erdnase, a man who was known to throw around a pun or two himself some 94 years ago. We can only imagine what mirth and laughter hid behind his mustachioed lips and the laughter that he must have brought to the people of this fair town while posing for the artist who produced this ice sculpture some 94 years ago. Now, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, Prairie, there's a motto uh, carved in the ice below his feet I'm gonna, I'm gonna crawl over there and see if I can, if I can get a little closer to read it. <laughs> excuse me, excuse me, excuse. Watch your bag there, buddy. Yeah, there's a, a motto here, and it, it appears to be in Latin. It says, "Ars larga, puns brevis." Well, I'm. I'm no Latin scholar, but I think it has something to do with underwear. Well, the scene is pandemonium out here, but Arts Express has spared no expense to bring you the finest in punditry. And that, well, for goodness sake, why, it's Mary, Mary Murphy. Mary, how are you? Good, Jack, good. Hey, what are you doing here? You look like you're all dressed up. Oh, yes, I am. I was at a rooftop wedding. Oh, you don't say. Yes, two antennas fell in love and got married. Two antennas? <sighs> yes, the ceremony wasn't much, but the reception was excellent. Uh, and, and what about you, Jack? Besides this, are you still managing the store? Oh, the donut business? No, 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 I got fed up with the whole business. So what did you do? Oh, well, I tried lumberjacking, but I couldn't hack it, so they gave me the axe. And um, what about your bartending? Still doing it, but it's not easy. No. <laughs> Last week, a guy walked in with a slab of asphalt under his arm and asked for a drink for himself and one for the road. Ooh, that's tough. And then the day after, two jumper cables walked into the bar. Very aggressive. Jumper cables? Yes, very rowdy. But I told them they better not start anything. Oh, yeah, that's good. But sometimes I feel invisible. I was behind the bar yesterday and two termites came up. Termites? Yes, and they looked straight at me and asked, is the bartender here? Uh-huh. Well, I'll tell you, feeling invisible is rough. I know a couple, an invisible man married to an invisible woman. Oh, and the kids are nothing to look at. Somehow I saw that coming. <laughs> oh, marriage is difficult. Take my sister and her husband, for example. Yeah. Years ago, my sister had twins and had to give them up for adoption. Uh-huh. One went to a family in Egypt and was named Amal, and the other went to a family in Spain and they named him Juan. Juan. Well, yesterday, Juan sent a picture of himself to my sister. When she got the picture, she told her husband that she wished she also had a picture of them all. But her husband said, they're twins. If you've seen one, you've seen them all. 
Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I guess she, she could just go visit them. Oh, she tried. She booked a flight, but when she boarded the plane with her two pet vultures... Y- your sister has pet vultures? Oh, yes. A bird in the hand and all that. Well, when she went to board the flight, they told her only one carry-on allowed. But you're wincing, Jack. Why? Oh, oh, tooth problems, Mary, and I want to avoid the dentist. Oh, Jack, they've got all kinds of painkillers and drugs now. Oh, yeah, but I've recently become a Buddhist. I don't want to take Novocaine. You see, I'm trying to transcend, transcend dental, dental medication. Yeah, exactly. I thought so. You don't have the time, do you? Oh, no, no, I'm done with watches. Oh. I once made a belt of watches. It was a waste of time. Oh, yeah, yeah. You make me so angry. I once ate a whole bunch of watches. It was time-consuming. Indeed. Well, good food is important. I hear they've even set up a new restaurant on the moon. Really? Yeah, the reviews say the food is great, but the atmosphere is terrible. Weren't you running a B&B at one point? Oh, yeah, yeah, I got fired, I'm afraid. Oh, what happened? Oh, I lost my temper. A group of chess players were standing in the lobby bragging about their chess victories. And I asked them to leave and why they argued. And I had to yell at them because I can't stand chestnuts boasting in an open foyer. (sighs) Your mouth had to twist a bit there. Mm. I don't blame you. People are so rude these days. Why, only yesterday my cousin John said someone stole the police station's toilets. They have nothing to go on. Oh, that's got to hurt. Well, I can tell you, they're not taking it sitting down. It's a difficult job. Yeah, yeah. They had a jailbreak the other day. A tiny fortune teller broke out of jail. My cousin said he was looking for a small medium at large. Oh, you don't say. I don't take stock in that supernatural stuff anyway anymore. No? No, no. Take my Uncle Fred, for example. He went to an exorcist, fell behind in his payments, and got repossessed. Oh, knowing your uncle, they probably came up with nothing. Hmm. They didn't have nothing to find. Oh, no, no, Mary, that's a double negative. Double negatives are a big no-no. Yes? No. A no-no? Yes, yes, double negative. You're positive. Oh, double negative. I see. And what are you doing here? Oh, well, I'm covering the world-famous pun competition for Arts Express. Oh, I once entered that. You did? Yes, I sent in ten puns hoping to win, but no pun intended. No pun intended. Well, Jack, great to be seeing you. I've got to run. Get my vaccination. Mary, you haven't had your coronavirus shots yet? A coronavirus? Who's talking about that? I'm talking about the pandemic. (laughs) Gotta go. See you, Jack. (laughs) Bye, Mary. Mary Murphy. Uh, Always a shot in the arm. What's that, Prairie? It's not the pun convention? It's the unemployment line. Well, I had a few puns about the unemployed, but none of them work. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller, live from Frostbite Falls, wishing you a pun-filled week. Oh, what did Mississippi, boy, what did Mississippi? What did Mississippi boy through her pretty lips? She sipped the Minnesota, she sipped the Minnesota, she sipped the Minnesota, that's what she did sip. to pay her taxes she went to pay her taxes she went to pay her taxes that's where she has gone and in a musical interlude Harpo Marx on harp with his version of Franz Liszt's Hungarian Rhapsody number two
Express. I was like, what is going on here? And it derailed into something quite different, very dark, and somehow managed to still be funny in parts. There's, of course, the first day of Christmas, but what about the last day? Forever. Charismatic comic actress Lucy Punch describes what seems to be going on in Silent Night, a sort of satirical doomsday Christmas Eve celebration of UK friends and family at a country estate as the hopelessly poisoned world is about to come to an end. Punch, who has also starred in Hot Fuzz, You Will Meet a Tall Dark Stranger, and as Cinderella's stepsisters at least four times in movies, and as Sylvia Plath, who along with Karl Marx appears as characters on a bedroom wall in How to Build a Girl, Phones in to Arts Express from the UK to, well, explain it all. First, some scenes from Silent Night, then Lucy Punch. You're perfect. Grandma! Happy Christmas. You're still alive? Yes, I think so. Jesus, they're early. Ah! Tony and Simon robbed the petrol station. Oh, what fun. We make tremendous criminals. I felt so good. We're all getting old. Well, we were getting old. It's just one potato each. Just one for everyone. Did anyone watch the Queen's speech? Well, she's clearly in some bunker set up, you know, filled with tins of baked beans and dog food. <laughs> Here's to the lives that we've shared. <laughs> May we rest in peace. I just think we should be honest with the kids. We know the Russians want us all dead. They're sending poisonous gas to kill us all in the morning. It's not the Russians. It's the panic. It's very upset. It will kill anything and anyone that is still alive. We should have all voted green. We just want to make sure that you understand that as your parents, we are not to blame. Clearly, it's not your fault either. Lucy Punch, and welcome to our show. Oh, thank you so much. Sure. Now, Silent Night is by no means your typical Christmas holiday movie. We have more than enough of those. So what led you to come on board? Um, I That's what I loved about it, that it was completely unexpected. And I started reading it thinking I was in sort of a Richard Curtis or Peter's Friends type film, and it's terribly cozy. And um, I knew the cast attached already before I, I got involved. And then I sort of got a sort of third of the way through and there were sort of some Easter eggs dropped along the way that I was like, oh, this, what's sort of going on here? And suddenly it completely derailed into something quite different 
um, seamlessly, but I just absolutely love that shift of tone um, and thought it was really exciting, really unexpected and very dark, pertinent and, you know, somehow managed also to sort of still be funny in parts. And the film seems to be clearly influenced by the deadly COVID pandemic still in progress. What are your thoughts about that, both personally and how the pandemic has influenced you and impacted this film as well? Well, interestingly enough, we actually, it, what the film wasn't influenced by COVID. We started shooting it and got shut down. So it had been written and set up and we were ready to go. And while we were filming... It was sort of happening, and oh. none of us, I, the rest of the world, were taking it terribly seriously. The first week, no one was talking about it. The second week, we were a bit like, oh, ha-ha, COVID, oh, dear, hope it's okay. The third week, we were getting a bit nervous, and it sort of, you know, a couple of weeks later, the whole thing got shut down. Mm. So what's amazing about it and so clever about Camille, the uh, writer and director, Camille Griffin, is that... She uh, sort of created something that was sort of even more timely. I mean, it's about uh, ultimately it's about sort of a sort of a global crisis. I mean, this is you know another global, different type of global crisis, sort of uh, sort of environmental one. But it was fascinating to be shooting it uh, in the midst of everything that was going on, and we shut down and we had to come back. Um, several months later to shoot, you know, some of the scenes that we didn't get to shoot. And, you know, interestingly enough, I've done some interviews and people have, you know, been talking about, and I don't know what I'm giving away or not allowed to give away. And there's sort of hints of, you know, a, a big theme of it being sort of pro-vaccination or anti-vaccination, which is was never Camille's, you know, that wasn't, didn't even exist. That wasn't even an idea. Um and sort of personal choice uh, when when she wrote it and we were filming it. But what's so amazing is that it's uh, it sort of it brought up so many sort of talking points and feels so relevant and so timely right now. Now, without giving too much away, the ending of Silent Night would suggest a sequel, especially since immigrants and the homeless were reportedly denied the exit pill in the film because they were deemed to not officially exist. I mean, I, if there was a, I would absolutely love that. I don't, <laughs> I don't know where that is. That would be really, really fun. Um, uh, yeah, that would be really fun. I mean, of course, we've all been. I mean, again, I don't know what I'm allowed to say, and maybe Sam will interject or cut a bit out, but I'm not. But we've all been killed off. Uh, but maybe we could come back because differences or zombies or god knows what but uh i think uh yeah it certainly it and you you're, you want to know what's next mm. it doesn't ruin the movie and since you've lived in both countries here and in the uk how would you say the same scenario might have played out in the u.s instead well i mean what i love to i mean presumably that this what the scenario in the movie Oh, right. Well, well, this feel, I mean, that's hard to say. I mean, it, what's, you know, it, it feels very, very British, these characters and, and this world um, uh, and this sort of country pile that they're all living in. But I think the idea of this sort of global crisis, uh, you know, and people having, knowing they've got one day left. And what do you do with it? And I think it's sort of pretty universal that people think, I want to, you know, you want to be with the people that you love. You want to be with your family. And while they're not family, they're chosen family, they're friends. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of alcohol involved. And I think that's pretty, probably be pretty universal to sort of <laughs> to everyone, you know, and sort of dancing and laughter and tears. Um, and sort of bewilderment and befuddlement and fear. Um, so uh, yes, I don't think uh, I don't think uh, hugely different. Mm. And on another note, what can you say about how to build a girl, in which you played Sylvia Plath and Alexei Sale as Karl Marx? What is it about Sylvia Plath that led you to want to play her? Well, you know, I 
was it was I just got uh, 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 and I was terribly flattered to get to play Sylvia Plath for five minutes. I mean, I'm only in the film for fleetingly as a sort of a talking poster, a talking head on um, on a on a girl's bedroom wall. But um, yes, no, I mean, you know, I, I'm a huge fan of this great sort of. Sort of clever literary giant you know and uh, you know I don't think I really deserved to play her but um again it was a sort of a, a bit of a comedy turn um so it's not um I didn't feel like I had to be too respectful it was it was all it was a sort of a comic moment all these sort of talking heads mm. on the wall and what about portraying Cinderella's stepsisters at least four times in movies what can you say about that well, I mean, I'm starting to worry about it a bit. Um, I've sort of aged myself out, in fact, at this of playing that role. I think I'm ready to graduate as an evil stepmother. But it's uh, it's always been, uh, you know, it's a funny, you know, it's a role I obviously all enjoy playing. And, um, uh, you know, I, I, funnily enough, when I was about 11 years old, I had a birthday party and I was, you know, everyone else was was a bit younger was you know wanted to sort of have be fairies or had a fairy theme or whatever and my theme of my birthday party was ugly stepsisters mm. so there's sort of pictures of me with the first stolen beauty spots and kiss curls and sort of put, pulling this terribly haughty expression uh and vamping it up so i think um yes i i, I clearly manifested it as a child <laughs> <laughs> And getting back to Silent Night and the class issues at play, your character, Bella, seems to be the only working-class character at these unusual festivities, to say the least. What are your thoughts about that? Well, that's interesting you say that, and I don't know why you think she's not working-class at all. She's meant to be a sort of rather impoverished um, uh, uh, sort of old aristo, and maybe that's why you thought... uh, because she references having no money. Yeah. And what's quite interesting, uh, the class system in the UK is very, very different to uh, America, whereby you are upper middle class if you have money. And that's not the case in England. So, you know, she's sort of went to a very good school, probably came from a very good family, had a sort of privileged upbringing, Um and associated and friends with a lot of people with a lot of money, but she just doesn't happen to have any or she spent it all. And relating to the government edict in the film, one character points out, why should we trust the government in this crisis? They killed Diana. What can you say about that and in relation to the real-life pandemic crisis? Well, I mean, it's really interesting. I mean, I think it's, you know, I, I the people have lost trust in the government and i mean certainly no we've never had to face anything like this a global pandemic and no one really knows what they're doing and i think you know as time will tell how much was kept from us and how little we know and how badly things or not have been handled um so i think yes there's been a huge amount of mistrust and i think that has sort of led to all this sort of pro-vaccination, anti-vaccination. And, and um, while I don't necessarily want to get into that or my, my, my thoughts, I, I, I understand both ways because it, you, you, we've, it, people feel misinformed and don't know who to trust and that, that something like this could happen in the world. Mm. feels scary that we, weren't, we were so unprepared and t- t- so taken by surprise by it. And what's going on there right now in London with the pandemic? Well, I mean, we're very, it's, uh, you know, everyone's been double vaccinated. I'm working here at the moment, uh, filming, and I'm getting tested every day, and everyone on set is wearing masks. But it's very interesting, because I've been backwards and forwards a lot over the last sort of year and a half, and travel quite a bit. And it's interesting being in different cities and seeing how 
how different people's attitudes are. You know, it's like here, you're allowed to go into a store, you're allowed to do whatever you want without a mask. In Los Angeles, it's a completely different situation and you've always got a mask in your pocket. You go into a store, that's mandatory. It isn't here. Um, and so um, it's, it, that, that, that's been very, very interesting, different people's attitudes, you know, and, you know, and how it sort of, and how it can change, you know, very, very quickly. And suddenly it's sort of like there's a spike in cases and everyone's very fearful again. And then actually everything's okay. Um, and I, yeah, I think that's, that is also a reason that leads to sort of, the, the, to go back to your earlier question about sort of not trusting the government, that it's sort of like, it's, where are we getting this information? And it's sort of, it's one rules and then it's different rules and it's sort of flip-flopping. And um, but yeah, people don't feel safe. And what are you filming there right now? I'm doing the second series of a TV show I did for Sky last year called Bloods, which is a, a show about um, paramedics, which is kind of, which is a sort of amazing to be doing. Uh, well, it certainly was last year. It was the first job I did after the um, pandemic. And it's sort of, you know, it, it's amazing to be playing somebody who works for the NHS, our national health um, organization here that, um, you know, that was, you know, these sort of key workers. And um, uh, so, uh, yes, it's, it's, uh, it's been interesting and fun. Okay, I have one last question. When Lucy Punch looks in the mirror, what does she see? last and very interesting question uh, she looks in the mirror she sees usually ex exhaustion <laughs> fortunately i've sort of in the last funnily enough in the last year and a half i don't know why whether it's the pandemic the stress of the pandemic or just my age my eyesight has gone so i'm actually now when i look in the mirror everything's sort of pretty blurry which is sort of rather nice i'm sort of always looking at myself in soft focus <laughs> okay Thank you so much, Lucy Punch, for calling into our show. Of course. Thank you. It's lovely talking to you. Okay. Bye. Bye. And Silent Night is being released this week. Hi, this is John Sales, and you're listening to Arts Express Radio. Don't skip for the bosses, don't listen to their lies. Poor folks ain't got a chance unless they organize. go out now on Arts Express with our Paris correspondent, Professor Dennis Bro, reading from his newly published novel, A Hello to Arms, a Harry Palmer mystery paperback. The second in his Harry Palmer L.A. trilogy, praised by Oliver Stone writing partner Peter Kuznick as, quote, a noir masterpiece and concerning a black factory worker fired by the arms industry who hires Harry about his case, as, quote, Harry follows a trail strewn with corpses and sex, confronting airline industry bigwigs, philandering generals and their lascivious wives, and an oaky foreman with ties to the Tulsa massacre, as Harry starts making dangerous connections.
This is Bro Breaking Glass. Today's episode features my novel, A Hello to Arms. This is the second novel in the Harry Palmer L.A. trilogy, available on Amazon and Nook and digital and paperback and soon to be in bookstores. In the first novel, Left of Eden, in the Los Angeles of the late 1940s, Harry tangled with the Hollywood studio system at the time of the blacklist. It's called a noir masterpiece by Oliver Stone writing partner Peter Kuznick. Critics have called the story in this second novel masterful and ingenious, with smart, snappy dialogue unspooled by a fresh, hard-boiled voice. Here, Harry has been hired by an African-American factory worker let go by the burgeoning arms industry to help him get his pension and by the Henry Wallace presidential campaign, similar in our own time to Bernie Sanders, to plug a leak that is sabotaging their effort. Harry visits a general at what will soon be Andrews Air Force Base to see if he's connected to one or both of the cases. If you listen closely, you can hear a nod to the ultimate noir, Chinatown. It was a nice day for a drive in the desert. As I headed east in the Mojave, on the highway that would eventually end in Palm Springs, I noticed that the aircraft and armaments industries were not only ringing L.A. with Rockwell and McDonnell and other companies expanding out into the suburbs of Inglewood, but were encroaching on the desert as well. What was once a void of cactus and dust was becoming a testing ground for commercial and fighter pilots. The Mojave was where many a pioneer, both in the reality of the last century and in this century's movie westerns, had floundered, lost amid the heat, and gasping for a last trickle of water. That was when the expanse of the desert was almost untouched by human hands. The desert of today was transforming, like a mirage out of the wasteland. After almost two hours of driving, emerged a wire-rimmed fence with activity bustling behind it on landing and takeoff strips. Next to them were acres of Quonset huts, and beside one of them, men in khakis hustled onto a training ground. I joined a convoy covered in drab, olive tent-like lacings that concealed what was inside the trucks as I approached the site of Maroc Testing Grounds, the home at the moment of General Titan Glover. I decided to veer off the road and reconnoiter, as they say in the Army, before I made my approach to the base. I was in luck. On the periphery was a lone rider on horseback, a relic from an earlier time. He was a teen, clad in a loose-fitting white shirt and pants with sombrero, the outfit providing maximum comfort in the 100-degree heat and just the opposite of the rigid drill uniform worn by those inside. His complexion was dark, mestizo, a mix, in this case likely of Mexican and Indian, maybe Apache. I parked my car out of sight of the base and got out. We watched each other for a while. His horse was poking around the ground, looking for something, and the silent rider let him poke. I approached him, and he did not ride away. I asked him what he was doing there. Trying to find water, senor, he said, and shrugged as if to add, what else does anyone do in the desert? And is there water around here, I asked? That is the problem, senor. There was, but, but now the water is no good. Is poison for my horse. The horse looked up and shook his head as if to nod in agreement. The boy restrained him by pulling at the reins. And why is that, I asked. He pointed out toward the base. The underground streams are dirty. They send their waste down into the desert, he said. How long has this been going on? Ever since they got here, they took our land, told us that we had no choice, we had to sell, told us that they needed this wide open area to do their testing. This is for years now. Animals and even cactus are dying. He turned his horse and trotted away. I couldn't help thinking of poor Horace, contaminated with lead poisoning at the stink works. They were the casualties of this so-called progress, as was the desert itself, which for centuries had tortured men who had doubted its awful power. Now men were torturing it. It was not an unreasonable detour. Now I had something I might be able to throw in the face of the man I was about to interview to see how he would react. I got in my car, and back on the desert road, I drove to the gate. Here to see the base commander, General Glover, I said. That went over like a lead balloon, which, given where I was, would be a very outmoded way of travel. This is a restricted area. What's your business? The soldier, brandishing a rifle, uh, smiled with sunglasses, covered most of his face, making him look like a mechanical guardian of hell. I think the mythical guardian was an attack dog, and that suited this sentinel to a T. Personal business with the general, I said. Someone he's very close to may be in trouble, and I'm trying to save him and keep the general out of the papers. The attack dog growled, but couldn't ignore a possible threat, not only to his superior, but to the integrity of the army 
such as it was. This is a new section of the military called the Air Force, and the base looked to be in a transition between the two. He got on the phone, and soon I was parking on the huge base lot and being escorted to the general's hut by an orderly. The khaki army uniforms were everywhere, but blue and gray Air Force outfits were starting to outnumber them. The Air Force was at least a sexier kind of drab, as befitting their mission to explore the heavens, or whatever they were doing up there. The head hut was larger than the others. Inside it was spacious, decorated with posh furniture. It looked more like a corporate office than an army barracks. The general will see you shortly, the orderly informed me. He seemed a little shocked that I had actually gained entrance to the sanctum sanctorum of his chief. The orderly led me to an office, opened the door, and announced me. Inside was another world, a spacious interior furnished with things not seen in most army barracks, a bookshelf, an oak desk surrounded by sleek swivel chairs, and two brightly colored paintings of abstract designs behind the desk. It all suggested a woman's touch. What have you got for me? said the man behind the desk, barely rising to acknowledge me. He was a formidable presence even without the acres of medals he was wearing when I first saw him at the plant a tall, athletic, medium-built man with hair that was just starting to gray, and with an air that bellowed that he was fashioning the future, and that every minute away from that mission was a waste of his time. The orderly was asking him about funeral arrangements. He waved off the task with his hands. You take care of it, he said. Not that it's part of your business, but we've just had a tragic accident with one of our pilots. You know, we're out here performing miracles, breaking the speed of light. This was the place where this country developed its first jet plane during the war. The desert provides near-perfect flying conditions. This used to be a dry lake bed. There is nary a cloud in the sky and no people out here. I wondered how my young friend on horseback would feel about being called a non-person. So, the crash was a design flaw? He blanched and looked at me as if I had just drawn a gun. Hardly. Our partners at Aerodynamics and the other companies who supply us are above reproach. The problem is that the damn pilots fly too low and sometimes end up getting clipped. The main difficulty in our business is pilot error. He had a nice, efficient way of absolving Reese and his cohorts, and he didn't seem open to challenge on this opinion. I couldn't resist puncturing the giant air balloon he was blowing up in front of me. And how about the safety of the workers at the plants, I asked. Are they as expendable as pilots? He reddened. And I thought he might throw me out of the office. He seemed to decide he needed to hear me out. I think you're referring to the stinkworks. Reese informs me. That's all been cleared up. And besides, that's a peacetime project aerodynamics is working on. The union certified its safety. The sweetheart union, I remembered, in league with the company. I honor my man, he said, stiffening. We're preparing to name the base after Lieutenant Edwards, the man we just lost. I wondered how much good that would do Lieutenant Edwards. Also sounds better than Maroc, who wants to work on a base named after a dried-up lake. <laughs> Clever let out a big bellowing laugh. He relaxed in his chair. He was more thoughtful, or conniving, than your average military man. The bookshelf was not entirely stocked with Air Force manuals, but a mix of economics, business, and history volumes. There was also, oddly, a case manual from the firm Dillinger and Rod. I know who you are, he said, staring beyond me, again as if into the future. Reese told me you've been prowling around. I want you to know that this industry and the government's participation in it are the key to the economy of this entire region. So he'd read those books behind him. The tax dollars were flowing here from the rest of the country during the war, and the army and businesses like Reese's answered the call. Now it's peacetime, and we're supporting that industry as best we can, returning production equipment we used during the war, refusing to dump our troop-carrying planes on the market, and instead working with the aircraft companies to develop peacetime transport planes that could be reconverted in time of war. Everybody benefits. The industry is needed, and you should leave Reese alone. If it looks like a threat, sounds like a threat, and someone is staring you down after saying it, it probably is a threat. Now, what are you doing here, and, and what have you got for me? The orderly, who had led me to the general, popped his head in and told him his 1030 was here. It was amazing how much his segment of the military was run like a business, or, or was it vice versa? Oh, those kids, he said, they'll have to wait until I finish up here. He let me in on what was going on. Today's Caltech Day. The kids from the university tour the base. We're very hooked up with them. The conquest of space will take a good deal of technological know-how, and the university is an important center for developing the science and physics of propulsion. 
Caltech was built at Arroyo Seco, above the Devil's Gate Dam. One of my first jobs on the force was occasionally patrolling the area to make sure that none of the dispatched Mexicans returned to the site. This was beginning to be throw a Mexican out of his home day. I was reminiscing about the past. General Glover brought me back to the future. Caltech is the place where the U.S. launched its propulsion laboratory, where Hughes Aircraft is developing radar and airborne electronics, and where our new Air Force is opening its space technology lab. The future of this great country is about the seamless intermixing of business, science, and the military. And is it about making a buck, I asked? It's about the pursuit of knowledge, Palmer. He knew my name. And I'm an active part of that. I'm taking up flying, training to become a pilot myself. You didn't come up through the ranks? No, I was drafted, so to speak, at the beginning of the war. I'm from finance. Actually, I only just returned recently to the country, home from the war. He didn't say more, and I filed that under subjects for further research, as they would say at Caltech, or in my profession, subjects for further skulking around. So spill! No more eyes pointed toward the future. They were squarely on me and the present. All right. I think your son might be in a bit of trouble, and it it might land him in jail. That idiot! What trouble could he possibly be in any way? I disowned him. That's why he doesn't use your name. When he went to work for that traitor Henry Wallace and denied his birthright, I said, enough. They're looking for a leak in the campaign. I think it might be him. If he's passing secrets and it comes out, he'll be fired. There will be an investigation and your name will be in the papers. I thought I'd better let you know. Thanks, Mr. Palmer, but I haven't spoken to Oscar What's-His-Name for almost a year. He was bitter about it, and it seemed to be the truth. Anyway, who cares about some college kids working for some pie-in-the-sky dreamer? It's going nowhere. Both the Democrats and the Republicans are on our side, and that man is not electable. That's the end of that, he said, making a gesture that indicated he had washed his hands of his son, Wallace, and anything that opposed him. I got up to leave. Listen, Palmer, he said. Thanks for the heads up, though I'm pretty sure my son is committed to his phony cause and is not the leak. But I do have a job for you if you're interested. Horace's case might not bring in any money, and the Walls campaign didn't seem to have unlimited funds, or really much of any, so I was listening. I think my wife's been cheating on me. My mouth formed into a duh, and a smile crossed my face. The woman had flirted with me on an assembly line, and Crystal told me she was not above propositioning young waiters. I know, I know, he said. She flirts a lot, and sometimes has affairs. I accept that, and we're adults, but what I need to know is, is there someone special? I'm in a delicate position, and the last thing I need at this moment is a scandal. Can you help me? I said I would see what I could do. He had already drawn up a contract. I was impressed. It included a more than generous allocation for expenses and a raise in my usual fee. I thanked him and signed. As I was leaving, I opened the door to face some wide-eyed students waiting for their audience with the general, who was no doubt about to inspire them to work for the future. A thin man in a lab coat brushed past me. The emblem on his coat read, Missile Development Program. He had a report he was anxious about. He was pushing it in the general's face as I left. That seemed just like a normal day, except that the lab-coated scientist addressed the general in German, and the general answered him in the same tongue. As I drove past the attack dog sentry guarding the entrance, I wondered what strange futuristic demons were loose inside this version of the Gates of Hell. And this is Bro with a Hello to Arms. Dennis Bro. 
And the music you've been listening to is Artie Shaw's Nightmare. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.